came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hi. Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Xenia? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Disasters Constructed live stream, and welcome back to season seven, episode two of season seven. Yeah, so it's it's good to be back. As you all know, in our first episode of the season, we chatted to Camilo Bueno, who's our co-curator for the season, and we were talking about the role of critical theory in disaster scholarship. I mean, for some people, that's like what, but it's really important, and it's fun. It is so fun, and. We kept coming back in that discussion to the importance of combination of practice activism and community mobilization if we're ever going to challenge disaster risk creation. And of course, throughout all of our seasons, if you've been with us in the past few years, we talk about root causes of disasters. And for sure, migration is one of the things that we've come to time and again. And maybe we don't focus on it as much as we should in disaster studies. Borders as a subject area don't often seem to be of concern to too many scholars in our field, although many argue, well, I should say many argue that disasters don't don't see borders or don't know borders. That's something that you've probably heard said before, but certainly the way that disaster risk is dealt with is state-focused, right? Indeed. And so today we have the perfect guest to unpack this more. And we're absolutely delighted to welcome Harsha. Hi, Harsha. Thank you Hi. so much. Thank you so much for Thanks joining for having us. Me. So Harsha Wale is the award-winning author of Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism. If you haven't read this book, you absolutely must. Jason and I spent a lot of time talking about it last year. We absolutely loved it. So thank you so much for writing it. It, it, it is a really important book. Go read it now. We'll do a quiz later. And it was published by Haymarket last year in 2021. Harsha is a community organizer and a campaigner in migrant justice, anti-capitalist, feminist, and anti-colonial movements. So welcome to the podcast. And we have a million questions that we want to ask. And I, I want to start, I guess, with, with kind of with, with your life a little bit as an activist. How did you become an organizer? And what inspired your work on borders? Oh, that's always the hardest question. You know, for me, there, there isn't a particular arc or narrative. There's no kind of one singular moment or event. But maybe what I would offer is, you know, when I started seeing as many of us do in our lives, it's, un, it's you know, unavoidable to see the different forms of discrepancy, the unequal distribution of vulnerability and violence all day around us, right? Who has access to housing, who doesn't, who can move, who can't, um, you know, whose surveillance, whose profile, just so many profound overlapping forms of violence. So for me, I came specifically to organizing because of just knowing full well that 
uh, recognizing and diagnosing the problem isn't enough. Like that's just a, a basic reality, right? Like we have to make the world, we have to act to change it. That's the momentum that we need, which isn't to say that we don't also need the theory. I mean, I've written a book, but that, you know, it's the collective action that will create the momentum to change things. And also because I was deeply demobilized by very kind of liberal refrains of individualism, right? The idea that, you know, for example, in order to heal the planet or to be an environmentalist, you just recycle or you make individual choices. And I found that to be very demobilizing because, you know, you start to realize like, okay, me showering for, you know, three extra minutes did nothing. And in fact, the problem is greater. You know, this is at a young age starting to realize it's, you know, it's capitalism, you know, it's the military. These are the larger structures beyond, far beyond individual choice. So I came to organizing in order to tackle the root issues. And for me, you know, it may seem paradoxical, but for me, it was less overwhelming to fight against broader systems. You know, sometimes it can be like, how are you, you know, you need to, you feel like you need to do individual actions and, and that the system is too low. But I actually find that that's, that's a, a deliberate neoliberal narrative because the, the individualism is what's demobilizing. When we come together to fight bigger systems, even though they are large and we, it's actually, you know, you feel much more empowered because you're tackling the root causes. So that for me is how I came to organizing, which is, you know, for me, the practice of coming together with other people in order to challenge and confront root systems. And migration in brief is, you know, it's just the, the story of my life, my family's life who have been marred and scarred by borders and detention and deportation and precarious status and migrant work and all of that really informed how I came to understand ideas of citizenship and belonging and, and non-belonging. Thank you so much for this. This is really interesting. And I really like your reflection on kind of working together, right? Working in solidarity. And I always find it fascinating how, you know, unionizing and solidarity and even mobilization, I guess, to an extent, are kind of dirty words, right? You sort of say it and people are like, mm, okay, you know, smells of communism here. And you're absolutely right in that it is this neoliberal and I guess to an extent capitalist narrative that creates good and bad citizens, right? And as, as a good citizen, you're good on your own. Why do you need a comrade, right? <laughs> because mm -hmm. the comrade may actually mm -hmm. pull you down. And it, it's just so hard to kind of to fight that, right? To kind of to fight that anti-solidarity narrative. Yeah, I mean, that's really the psychological effect of Thatcherism, right? Like there is no other alternative, like that deeply capitalist idea of competition, of austerity are based in the idea of the individual, which really, if we trace it back, is also the entire doctrine of colonialism, right? Settler colonialism, the hardworking, plucky pioneer, which completely erases the reality of genocide and enslavement. And so absolutely, there's a deeply psychic effect that is anti-solidarity that goes against community, that goes against the spirit of interdependence and collaboration, you know, and really reinforces the kind of social Darwinian idea of how we're supposed to live. And I think actually such a big part of organizing is convincing each other and believing again that to be human is to be interdependent, right? Like there's so much that goes against that. The idea that meetings are slow and people will bring you down and it's more efficient to do things on your own. All of that seeps in that capitalist logic of how to organize efficiency and the pyramid scheme and all of that. But such a big part of it is bringing back kinship into how we imagine the world. Mm. And I, you know, but it, what worries me a lot and particularly now that we're about to get new Thatcher kind of, I think, in the UK as our new prime minister. Uh, hi highly worrying, but mm, let's not go there. It's, 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 the, it's, it's how the government and the companies really turn the idea 
of care, right, which really is a kind of the foundation of solidarity into something that they now make benevolent, right? And they pretend to care and then completely turn it kind of upside down, right? Put it on their head. And we mm -hmm. end up again with the individualistic narrative of high performance versus community yeah. being in interdependent and vulnerable together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this the weaponization of care, you know, to, to kind of bring it back to borders and carceral institutions, um, that weaponization is so dangerous, right? Because it's care and safety, this kind of state violent based idea of care and safety that actually justify prisons, police, borders, right? The idea right. that in order for us to care about one another, you know, we care about rapists, that's why we have police in prisons, we care about sure. violence, that's why we have police in prisons, we care about national security, that's why we have borders, you know, so um, I think it is important to think about care, mm -hmm. and the ways in which care has been distorted to actually, you know, to reproduce oppression and violence, rather than a care that is truly and genuinely, you know, anti-oppressive and internationalist, right? So mm. there is a kind, there is a care that is deeply nationalist, masculinist, and so much and oppressive and so much more in the ways in which carceral institutions rely on our best instincts of care and safety. Mm. Ooh, Jason, we can't hear you. Muted. Oh, sorry. I like unmuted and then muted again. Somebody had to do it. Somebody had to mute it. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about the, the narratives that have been created and dominated about migrants and turning them into a into a threat. And it's a simple, it's a simple kind of um, way to think about it. And it's quite powerful and, and makes people perceive a risk, you know, and your book, Border and Rule, disrupts this narrative and challenges it. And you show how the global geographies that we might see as disparate are actu actually share logics of rule that displace, immobilize, criminalize, exploit, and expel refugees and migrants and turn them into this threat rather than protecting it, them. So what, what are the mechanics behind this? Why, why does this happen? Why do people create these narratives? Yeah, another big question. You know, and, and I appreciate the attention to global geographies because I think, you know, one of the ways in which, um, you know, immigration discourse, if you will, works is through very domesticated nationalist lines, right? Like it is to domesticate and make immigration into national policy rather than to see that the dimensions of immigration are completely global. And, you know, I risk generalizing here, but if I may for a moment, like, you know, the reality of migration and displacement around the world today is that there is a deep asymmetry that reflects global asymmetries of power, right? Like the differences between whiteness and its racialized others, between the global north and the global south, and even between the global south, right? Like the, the global north of the global south and the global south south, you know, between rich and poor, etc. So that is the reality of migration today. And so I think the mechanics are, are global in nature because they operate around these global fault lines. The other piece that I think is important to keep in mind is how we even, you know, that so much of this is these anchors that go unnamed. We often think of immigration about as an issue of law and order, right? It's just about the law. Like you are coming, quote unquote, illegally, you're coming irregularly, you haven't followed the proper channels. So it becomes this kind of colorblind narrative about law and order 
that obscures the fact that actually immigration and displacement is a deeply racialized phenomenon, right? About which people and which bodies are cast as migrants and refugees versus, for example, which bodies are cast as expats or tourists or, you know, which ones are welcome and which aren't. And so I think that is uh, the global reality of white supremacy and racism and casteism and, you know, and anti-blackness and anti-indigenous genocide that is the pillar, really the pillar of global migration regimes, right? Like we cannot forget that even though we think of or conceive of the migration crisis or the refugee crisis, whatever name it's given, as new, that really this is centuries old, right? Like if we trace back to centuries ago, when we had 12 million Africans who were enslaved, millions of indentured laborers from Asia scattered across the globe, while 20 million Europeans became settler colonists, right? Like that discrepancy is the heart of what continues today as the migration crisis about who has the right to move and under what conditions is a clear trajectory from settler colonialism, enslavement, indentureship, and colonization. And the last thing, perhaps, you know, the most kind of salient and in contemporary discourse around the migration crisis is that, as you said, it paints migrants and refugees as threats, right? So state narratives of caravans, hordes, swarms, floods, all using these depictions, these very clear depictions that are meant to essentially cast migrants as invaders, right? Like that's essentially what they do is to show migrants as invaders, as trespassers, which invents the nation state as something that is vulnerable, right? So it, it works to actually create the migrant as the threat and the nation state and the border as the victim, right? So it's a complete inversion of reality when in fact the border is the apparatus of violence, right? It is literally buttressed by the state, by a military industrial complex, by the entire legal apparatus, um, when in fact migrants and refugees suddenly are no longer seen as vulnerable. Or if they are seen as vulnerable, it's often to actually justify state narratives of trafficking and rescue, right? Like, so even if they are vulnerable, it's so the state can rescue them and then still get rid of them. So it's this kind of, this, this contradiction that is deliberate where migrants get cast as the threat and the state gets perceived of as, as the victim that's being trespassed or being violated, that then justifies, you know, immense amounts of militarization, right? Like Fortress Europe in Europe, you know, everything that's going on with the Remain in Mexico protocols in the United States, offshore detention in Australia, just this entire global security project that is happening that is increasingly seeing the militarization of borders and which is particularly intensifying with climate change. Absolutely. Something that I was thinking that, that definitely connects this to disaster studies folks is the, the way in which migrants are, like risk is cre created intentionally for migrants through this process. And, and part of it is about creating underclass of, for labor, right? And that's something that struck me in your book as well, just the, the the, the creation of risk for, for people, say, in the United States, which, which you focus on in some, some of the book, and that a lot of the powerful don't actually want everybody to leave, but they want mm -hmm. to be able to exploit them, right? And that, for me, that's fundamentally, you know, something disaster scholars need to, to pay attention mm -hmm. to. Yeah, and I think that's the other key piece of understanding the border regime. It is not to completely, as you point out, to exclude everybody. It is to create conditions of deportability, 
mm. right? That you may be, that you are deportable even if you are not deported. And, you know, increasingly in, in the, you know, in this apocalyptic kind of reality of, of climate change and climate disasters, you know, climate-induced disasters are creating displacements at a ratio of three to one. So traditionally, displacement was seen through the lens of, you know, political persecution, for example, war, you know, military, militarism, et cetera, civil wars, is how the UN kind of in the global international regime, that's what's the kind of very narrow definition of who's a refugee, for example, who's a displaced person. And, you know, even though the world currently doesn't recognize climate refugees, you know, the world also recognizes that climate induced disasters are outpacing traditional displacements at a ratio of three to one, some as high as six to one, right, depending on which numbers you go by. And so, you know, on the one hand, we have the world that's, you know, increasingly creating um, you know, human-induced climate change. We know that, you know, that's that's the reality. Those who are most vulnerable are, again, not a coincidence from those communities and countries in the global south that have been devastated by imperialism, colonialism, capitalism, and more. You know, low-lying plains, Bangladesh, for example, you know, all the island states in the Oceania region. And these are the very same communities who, while being impacted by climate-induced disasters, are also now facing two things. One is, you know, the complete denial of safety for climate refugees are facing fortified borders. We know that most Western and rich states around the world are putting more and more of their money into climate security. And climate security basically means more gated communities, means more borders. That's what it is. You know, there's an entire unit of the Australian Defense Forces that now patrols around Australia for climate refugees. The United States has the same in the Caribbean. Europe, of course, in the Mediterranean. And at the same time, the purpose of this kind of fortification in the face of climate disasters is to exclude, but to create vulnerability, right? So at the same time, these very nation states are increasing what they call guest worker programs, right? Mm -hmm. So to create a funnel, to create a funnel away from secure residency, from safe movement, you know, or safer movement or from mobility towards essentially a class of indentured laborers who are facing climate disasters at home, cannot move with full freedom but are now given these kind of tied visas where they have to work for capitalist, you know, in the capitalist economy and for big business, right? Basically as indentured, cheapened labor, working for less than minimum wage, tied to an employer, working long hours, like all of the, all of the metrics of exploited labor that exist are placed into these temporary guest worker programs. And that is actually what most nation states want, right? Is to create conditions of deportability where people have to stay under these precarious situations. And we know that's the reality. We know countries like the United States, for example, have the surveillance power, have the policing power, have the immigration power to actually deport every undocumented um, worker if they actually wanted to, right? Like there was such immense, intense surveillance. But the reality is that's not what the state wants. The state wants to be able to create a, a class of labor that is cheapened through the denial of lack of citizenship and that has been made vulnerable to the crises of climate change and capitalism and colonialism that's devastating the world. Absolutely. And I think this is exactly where the kind of the notion of violence comes. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about a little bit more about this because I don't think many people connect kind of violence and borders, right? In in the same sentence, in, in the same context. And you've recently tweeted in response to yet another death of migrants who suffocated in, in a truck that was getting them over the border. And I quote, 
arresting smugglers and traffickers is increasingly presented as a way to protect migrants from evil networks. But this just multiplies border controls and drives migration underground whilst deflecting from the violence of the border itself. And I, I, I cannot agree more. I, you've, you've said this so eloquently. It was just fantastic because the narratives are really perpetually around blame, right? But never about the violence itself. So what kind of narratives do you think we need so we can turn around this question of borders, right? And that would actually emphasize this stratification, right? This violence rather than hide it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and it's a fair point, right? When we think of borders, most of us tend to think of them or, you know, in the kind of mainstream narrative and even in parts of the left as a kind of neutral technology, right? That a, a border is just like a map, you know, it's a line on a map and we have to cross it and we need passports and we need visas. But the obfuscation or the invisibility of that violence, if anything, is just a function of the privilege of those who carry passports where borders don't mean anything, you know, for most people in the world, borders are deeply violent because it literally regulates the conditions under which you live. You know, right now, there's so many things we can point to, but, you know, right now, the ways in which we can see how borders maintain global apartheid is the reality of vaccine apartheid, right? Like the vaccine apartheid is, of course, a function of so many different kinds of inequalities, but it's also a function of the inequality that the border creates because the border is what maintains the global north in relationship to the global south, right? The global north and the global south are not geographies. They're politically made constructions of where wealth resides, you know, where power and privilege reside, where extraction resides, where a majority of the world's decisions and control is based. And the fact that, an you know, that entire countries, that the vast majority of the world's population still doesn't have adequate access access to life-saving vaccines is a function of the border because it is the border that then prevents people from moving to access to get that vaccine, right? Should they want it? It is the border that creates the stratification of, you know, almost half life expectancies in certain parts of the world, right? Where some parts of the world have like, you know, 90 year old, 80 to 90 age, you know, years old as your average life expectancy. In other parts of the world, you're at 40 or 50, right? The border is what maintains that stratification. And so the border is deeply violent because it is one of the key pillars of what maintains these global asymmetries of power. Because if there was no borders, right, if there were no borders, so much of that inequality would, would collapse, mm. right? If there was genuinely free mobility, if there genuinely was a living wage, if there was no border and there was no ability for capitalism to exploit cheapened labor, whether by outsourcing into sweatshops, you know, into the so-called third world, or capitalism insourcing cheapened labor, if capitalism could not do that, if there were no borders, that would genuinely mean a living wage for all people, right? Workers would not be pitted against each other, for example. Um, so borders are, you know, capitalism requires borders. Borders are a spatial fix for capital accumulation. It creates a segmentation for how capitalism works. It is the function of how racial capitalism works, right? It is what what keeps what keeps the myth of the whiteness of the West alive is the border, right? And so borders are, are deeply violent and they operate in such a naturalized way that we don't see how a border is a pillar of so many forms of oppression. And, you know, important to hear also name that a border doesn't just exist at the border, right? Bordering regimes also operate internally, where again, for example, you could be an undocumented worker. You have technically crossed the border, 
mm. but you are still facing deportation. You are still at the mercy of, you know, detention violence, of deportation violence, of being paid less than minimum wage, of precarious work, of not being able to access social services because you don't have citizenship. And so in this way, you know, citizenship as such a key method of how privileges are accrued the border is what creates the regime of citizenship, right? And who is granted access. And again, so deeply ideological, because you could also be a citizenship, a citizen, and depending on the status of your citizenship, it could be revoked, right? Sure. So we're also seeing in the post 9-11 climate, how tenuous citizenship is if you are racialized, black, Muslim, etc. And so in this way, borders are deeply violent. And when the state, just coming back specifically to migration, when the state kind of, and governments, turn the gaze towards precarious migration by blaming smugglers, by blaming traffickers, sometimes by blaming migrants themselves, right? By saying like, why did they get on dinghy boats or, you know, these kinds of horrible right-wing stories about, you know, mothers and fathers who are putting their children at risk. That kind of, that kind of turn to externalize the violence is a way for the state to absolve itself of responsibility because the reality is, if there was safe and free migration, then there would be no precarious migration. Then the economy of smugglers and traffickers would collapse. People wouldn't need to rely on these networks in order to move. People would not need to be on dinghy boats in order to make these movements, right? So precarious migration is what produces the dangers and the reason that there are precarious journeys. There's nothing natural about a fatal journey as a migrant, because again, we live in a time where actually a lot of people move with a lot of privilege and safety, right? We live in a time where if you carry a certain passport and you look a certain way and you have a certain amount of money, you could fly around the world with immense luxury, you know, luxury and luxury and privilege and access to the entire world. The world is at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing inherently dangerous about being a person on the move. It's just that certain people's movement has been criminalized, has been stigmatized, has been vilified. And if that movement was made safe, if border controls and visa restrictions and interdiction and safe third country agreements and all of these multiplying border technologies did not exist, then there would be only safe migration. Hmm. And, you know, you kind of make, as you were talking about this naturalization of borders, right? As if kind of they were there forever hmm. and ever, they just magically appeared, right? I think we very often forget in this narrative as well, the fact that the borders were created artificially not that long ago, right? Just a few mm -hmm. decades ago, after Second World War, there's been a massive divide of, of the world. Look at the map of Sub-Saharan Africa, right? It's kind of geometrically perfect when we know that physical locations would never be like that. And and, and I think the, this, this realization or, or in, in fact, the kind of forgetting of the artificialness of border creation is perhaps part of this narrative, right? That we white people with privilege created the borders in the first place and now we fortify our own state which were created a little bit before right but more of an agreement rather than an imposition and now we are enjoying the freedom of movement in europe mm -hmm. of course you know that that is the narrative mm -hmm. not not so much for us any longer you know we shot ourselves on the foot but whereas everybody else who's coming outside of europe they they have no right for movement they have no right for freedom because we said so yeah absolutely and that that is you know, why it's so important to trace the history of borders and, you know, the ways in which migration movements have, have, have looked historically, right? Like, again, what is settler colonialism, if not a massive form of not migration, but a 
of colonization, right? Um, and so, you know, that is the reality of most of the borders of the world. Most of the borders of the world were created in order to maintain colonial power, right? Like one of the myths is that borders were created in the quote unquote post-colonial period, but they were actually maintained mm -hmm. to maintain colonial sure. power, right? Like, yeah. you know, for example, where my family's from, the Punjab was partitioned in one of the, the bloodiest mm -hmm. human and largest human displacements in human history in order to create a partition, right? In order to create disunity, in order to cleave communities, in order to divide and rule. And that's where the book's title comes from, right? Because border and rule draws on the logic of divide and rule, which is a deeply colonial logic. Mm. And so that is absolutely the case of the border. And, you know, if we even look at the modern technology of, of passports, there's a few ways in which we can, we can trace them. But, you know, in North America, for example, the kind of first technologies of what became passports that kind of predate passports were really in the context of enslavement, right? In order to register and control and surveillance black people, like that is the entire, like the regime of controlling mobility comes from the control of black movement. In the context of the British empire in Asia, the kind of predecessors to passports was in order for the British Raj to ensure and to control and track the movement of indentured laborers you know so that is some of the the technologies of borders of passports like again everything that we think is naturalized and just a given they have such deep roots in violence right like such deep roots in fundamentally traceability right of traceability tracking and ensuring that every human being on this planet is recorded and accounted for right like we just take this for granted but like we didn't live in this way before right like where you are just known in the system with such intensity into every other you know border agent on the planet so there is there's also a newness you know it's old but there's an escalation that is new that you know when you intensify it with ai and technologies and surveillance cameras um where that the tracking of people measures you know it's a parallel to deportability right where it, it doesn't mean that your your information is always going to be used right but there's a a logic to surveillance that has to do with state control and state violence that records and accounts for people in a way that is fundamentally connected to the project of colonization and imperialism and enslavement and dentorship because that is that is the same very same kind of ideology and pillar of maintaining control and labor and to create subjugated populations. That is the continuation of that same logic. I wanted to, to follow up. You mentioned citizenship and I remember reading Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz about nomination of immigrants, right? That book and brilliant book. And she was talking about the, the kind of expectations and demands that to, to Americanize in, in the United States. And I just, it, it just strikes me that, you know, there's a, a class of people that is like wanted to re remain not citizens, um, mm -hmm. to create this, this labor force for capitalism. But then there are demands made of racialized people. If they want to avoid that future, they can also join, join the, the empire, you know, so to say, and it's, it's, it's just disgusting you know that that's an expectation to be part of to have a more secure future right mm -hmm. yeah and that's you know that's the reality of citizenship right and that again it's not kind of a, a neutral a, a, a neutral kind of technology 
citizenship is racial citizenship, citizenship is neoliberal citizenship, right? And mm. so it's a it's forced assimilation into the existing neoliberal status quo order. Right. And so we, we see that in the even just in the determination of who is an immigrant and who is not, right? So in order to be an immigrant that does have access to permanent residency, for example, in whatever state it is, those markers are, you know, different between jurisdictions, but essentially the same. It's your ability to be a quote unquote model minority, right? Like don't have a criminal record, speak the national language of the place you're immigrating to, usually English or French, including, you know, including in, in the colonial core, you know, not being a single mother, being a professional in a professional job, you know, those are the kinds of of markers for the kind of desirable migrant. And the flip side of that is, you know, the vilified migrant or refugee who's a quote-unquote bogus refugee or a quote-unquote criminal, you know, all, all of those kinds of things that reproduce oppression. And so citizenship absolutely is one of the ways in which the nation state makes itself by literally being able to select for human beings. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a form of, I mean, it's not explicitly, but it's a flip side of a kind of eugenics project, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're literally choosing the kind of people you want and literally casting other people as undesirable based on race, gender, ability, class, you know, so much more. And so there is, that is one of the ways in which immigration is so deeply oppressive is that it allows the state to pick and choose and determine desirability at its own whim, right? And in some places, you literally have a, a test, like you just get points for how desirable you are. And if you meet the test, you get in. If not, you know, it is so regressive and so deeply, it's just fucked up. It is so fucked up, but it is so naturalized. You know, again, where most people believe we have the right to decide who comes into our country without questioning uh, that really your citizenship is an accident of birth. It is nothing you have earned, right? It's a complete accident of birth that determines how you will live and under what conditions. Yeah, well, I guess the, the big question then is like, what would it take to undo border imperialism or abolish borders? Is that a, is that a possible future in, in the, the, the world we live in? You know, I don't know if it's a possible future, but I think it's a necessary future, right? And like all signs point towards the fact that like we're in a death scape, like literally, right? People around the world are dying or being killed for so many, like, you know, there are so many causes, right? Whether it's the border and migrants who are killed trying to cross the border, who are dying trying to cross the border, or again, whether it's just the deep global asymmetry of the world where so many, literally millions of people are cast to death literally based on their where they're born and the mm -hmm. conditions into which they're born, right? And so for me, it's a necessary project. And it is a practical one if we genuinely believe in life-affirming solutions. And to me, a no-border politics is different than an open-border one, right? Because an open-border one is where we just open up the border, but the rest of these kinds of underlying inequalities remain the same, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying open up the border and the global south, for example, is still forced to live without vaccines, right? Like that's not the solution. To me, no borders means that we, we radically upend the political and economic system that we live in, right? That we mm -hmm. truly imagine the end of capitalism. And we have to ask ourselves, right? Like, why is it so, it is so much easier to imagine the planet collapsing mm -hmm. 
right now, right? Like we, it's so much easier to buy these doom stories than it is to actually imagine an end to capitalism rather than like, you know, which goes back to that earlier question, right? About organizing and our collective power. Individual also, individualism also breeds this kind of nihilism. <laughs> and so it is deeply despairing to think that we could all be, you know, so much more at ease imagining the end of the world and, and species extinction than the fact that we all can live that we all have a right to live. So for me, in that sense, no borders may seem impractical, it may seem utopic, but it genuinely is the only future that we can have on this planet, right? Where every person is able to live in their home with safety and dignity, which doesn't just mean open borders and everybody's forced to migrate, but it means that we also, we challenge and we confront and we end the root causes of forced displacement, right? Mm -hmm. So that people aren't being forced to leave from their homes that climate change means people aren't drowning, that people aren't dying in droughts and famines, you know, that military occupation means that people, you know, that an end to that means that people are able to live freely and don't have to leave their home. So to me, no borders is the necessary corollaries of the freedom to stay and the freedom to move, right? And they may seem like contradictions, but that is actually what no borders is about, right? It doesn't just mean open the borders and everyone is on the move because their homes are being destroyed. It means that we are actually genuinely committed to ending forced displacement and we are committed to safe migration both at the same time. Absolutely. And the, this the kind of the, the no border concept is something that I guess we we need to talk about more in terms of securitization and weaponization and militarization, right? Because those just somehow get so uncoupled mm -hmm. and, and never are put forward. And as you said, this is because, you know, the borders are protecting us, right, from, from the mm -hmm. threat that, that is coming from the outside. The threat, the conditions of which we have created ourselves not, not, not that long ago. Um, and I absolutely love how you've explained this, this idea of abolition, right? This is, this is not about the borders. This is about capitalism as a, as a root cause, really, of, of every single problem that, that we see here. Thank you so much for this. You know, I, I'm, I wish we had 10 hours rather than an hour today. And once again, I, I just please everyone, just go read the book now, you know, if you haven't read Thank it. Thank you. It, it is such a fantastic book. And it, it, Can it I really... add one thing? Yeah, sure, please. Sorry, it just it came to me when you're speaking about abolition, right? Because obviously yes. this is this is such a core piece of abolitionist politics. But I would just stress because you know it can become very easy to think like, oh, a world of no borders. Then like, how do communities maintain their control and their autonomy, right? And here, I'm at an abolitionist politics is is such a, a touchstone, right? Because for example, in abolitionist politics, when we demand an end to police and prisons. It doesn't mean that we don't want safety for people, right? It actually means we want more safety and more self-determination for people. Mm -hmm. It means that we know that if there is violence, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not so naive as to think there isn't forms of violence or harm that we need to protect, it, but that we figure out ways to do that that are actually work, that mm -hmm. are not punitive, but that work. Like, because that's one thing we know about prisons is prisons don't work. They reproduce violence. They don't, you know, they don't actually they don't actually contribute to rehabilitation. They don't address the root causes of why someone may have committed harm. And that is the same idea of borders, right? The idea of not having borders doesn't mean that communities can no longer defend themselves if they face harm. And if I can give one example, because to me, you know, this is what it, this is what it actually means to think about community self-determination in a non-bordered, non-capitalist way. Is so where I live, I live in, in, the, in the west coast of, of Canada, where there's a number of indigenous fights against extraction, against oil companies, mm -hmm. oil and gas. 
and these are fights against colonialism and capitalism, right? These entwined projects, because of course the colonial state is forcing through these capitalist projects and they work hand in hand. And there are many examples, but one in particular is the Wet'suwet'en Nation, which is an indigenous community that have been fighting 10 pipelines in their homeland. And over the span of 10 years, there has been, you know, pipeline companies encroaching into their community. In the past few years, there has been fully militarized police raids in these communities to try to force the pipeline through. And what the community has done is that they, they affirm and they exercise what they called free prior and informed consent. So free prior and informed consent is a principle of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And it's the principle that you need, you know, free prior and informed consent before entering into an Indigenous community. And of course, consent is so, so key to gender justice, to reproductive justice, to bodily autonomy, to so many broader politics. And what they do is when you come into, into their community, they now exercise FPIC. And what FPIC is, is, you know, people in the community will ask you, why are you here? What are your intentions? And are you here to work on behalf of the state or on behalf of capitalist industry? Mm-hmm. Right? And so I I've like often that. gotten baited, right? And people have been like, oh, so you go to Wet'suwet'en territories, you believe in no borders. That sounds like a border checkpoint. And I say, absolutely not. Right? A border is not just anybody exercising their autonomy. Like, to say the border is a checkpoint is to miss what we've been talking about, which is the violence, which is the connection to capitalism, which is the connection to, you know, racialized segregation, to citizenship. But for communities to ask, you know, why do you come here? Mm. And are you actually working for the state or capitalism being a key question is to invert the logic, completely invert and subvert and dismantle the logic of the state and capitalism, which is that, of course, when you come into a community, you have to be offering something in a good way. You're not coming here to harm the people or to harm the land. And so when I think of self-determination, when I think of non-border, non-capitalist forms of community and autonomy and self-determination, I think of these very alive examples. And also to your question, Jason, you know, is a, a no-borders world possible? I guess I would also offer that in many communities and in, you know, this is already alive. This isn't a future, you know, this is actually a past that has been deliberately quashed by capitalism and colonialism, that these ways of living and of knowing and of legal systems are very much alive today. And so it's not also a future. It's also in many ways a return. I, I, I love that. Thank you so much for adding this. And this example is brilliant. You know, this is the kind of border form that I, I'd be very keen to fill in, you know, do you work for the state or capitalist organization? This is just fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Harsha. This, thank this you. Thanks for that last bit. It just, it came to me. <laughs> it, it, it's great. No, and you know, you, this is, to me, the connection with, with disaster scholarship and disaster research is just kind of so explicit there. You know, this is the, the root causes is exactly what we're kind of talking about. But just given somebody a little bit more money, right? Or kind of a better passport doesn't solve the problem. We will still have a disaster mm. because we, mm. we live in an unjust society where we we, we judge based on where, where we were born, right? And on the color and privileges that we don't want to acknowledge, of course, because why would we, right? It's, it's inconvenient. Mm. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for this reflection. Thank you. Um, Thanks for the conversation. It's fantastic. So thank you all for joining us today. Our next live stream is a little bit later. It will be on the 10th of August at 7 p.m. British summertime. And we will be talking to Lucy Isthoff, uh, the author of the When the Dust Settles book. So that should be also fun. Please join us. And of course, follow us on Twitter or, or any podcast app that you're using. Um, and enjoy season seven. Thank you all. Bye. Thank you all. Thanks, Asha. Bye. Bye.
Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.